Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're here to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digested issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on food, food systems, how they affect the health of the planet and our health. The food system is a very complex web of activities involving numerous components. And our food system also includes not only the basic elements of how we get our food from the farm to our fork, but also all of the processes and the infrastructure involved in feeding a population. Systems can also exist within systems. For example, farming systems, agricultural ecosystems, their economic systems and social systems, and within those are further subsets of, say, water systems, energy systems, financing systems, and so on and so on. Issues concerning the food system include the governance as well as the economics of food production and its sustainability. It includes the degree to which we waste food and how food production affects the natural environment and the impact on food on individual and population health. Human diets inextricably link health and environmental sustainability and have the potential to nurture both. However, Current diets are pushing the earth beyond its planetary boundaries while causing ill health. And this puts both people and the planet at risk. And here today to help us explore and unpack this from the perspective of the environment is Michael Clark, PhD. And Michael is with Oxford University in England, and he is at the Nuffield Department of Population Health. Michael's research interests include the environmental, economic, and health impacts of food systems. He uses models to provide quantitative estimates on the current and projected impacts of the food system, as well as the potential benefits of changing our food system. Michael joined the Center on Population Approaches for Non-Communicable Disease Prevention in August of 2018, and he's working on expanding the center's food system model to incorporate biodiversity, and economic outcomes in collaboration with other researchers as well as international collaborators. Professor Clark holds a PhD in natural resources science and management from the University of Minnesota and studied biology and ecology at the undergraduate level. Welcome, Michael. We're so glad that you could join us. Hi, thanks for having me today. Glad to be here. Let's start by just telling us why is it important to talk about food? That is a really good question. So I think when most people think about pollution, they're probably thinking of some combination of smokestacks, cars, trains, planes, burning fuel, and other industrial activities. Those are very important, 
But the food that we eat, how it is produced, and everything in between, as you mentioned, is quite arguably the single largest source of environmental damage globally. So some stats behind this are that about 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, 40% of Earth's land surface, and 70% of Earth's fresh water use is used for results from food system activities. Will you describe, though, for our listeners how the production of the food we eat impacts the environment? And then can you break down the major sources of environmental damage within our food systems and then talk about a little how this has changed over time? So food affects the environment in many ways, and major sources of environmental damage within the food system is a combination of fertilizer production and use, livestock rearing, land cover change, rice production, and energy use used to produce agricultural inputs, but also used during processing, transportation, and preparation of food. Doing all those activities requires inputs. So growing crops, for instance, requires fertilizer production. Producing fertilizer requires energy use. Applying fertilizer to grow crops results in nitrous oxide, which is a very potent greenhouse gas, has much stronger and has a much larger climate effect than does CO2. And so by combining all of those impacts, we're able to get a rough estimate of what activities are most damaging to the environment from within the food systems. From that context, uh, production and animal rearing are the two most damaging aspects of food systems to the environment. And so a recent analysis from 2018 by one of my colleagues at Oxford, whose name is Joseph Poor, found that those two activities account for about 80% of the climate impacts for most food production systems. Transportation processing and preparation do matter, but those are much more context dependent. So for example, flying say asparagus from Chile to the US during winter is not particularly efficient from a climate perspective, but transporting that asparagus to the US if you're able to do it on a large car cargo ship is actually quite efficient from a greenhouse gas perspective. And so there is this really cool study from 2008 that examined whether it is more environmentally sustainable to grow onions in the UK or to grow them in New Zealand and then transport them to the UK. And what that study found, and just to reiterate how context matters in the case of where food is produced, what that study found is that growing the onions in New Zealand, storing them over winter, then shipping them to the UK on a large boat was actually much more effective and much more sustainable than growing the onions in the UK itself. So how is most of the shipping done? Because you're saying that when it comes by boat, it's a minimal, so to speak, environmental impact as compared to being flown over. So how is most of it done? So it depends on the food. And so for things like bananas or tomatoes or other foods that can be picked before they're ripe and ripened in, say, on a boat, on a train, those can be transported by boat, by train, by car. So whatever is least costly is generally the most commonly used matter. For things like asparagus, again, going from Chile or Mexico to the U.S., where it may spoil in a day or two days after it's picked, those are going to be flown on a plane. So from a global perspective, most food transportation is done through a combination of cargo ships, trains, and like big trucks. But again, for certain products, that's going to be skewed towards certain methods of transportation, depending on where they're produced and how long it takes for them to spoil. Let's dig into production. Explain to people what do you mean, what happens when you say production, and then how it creates that environmental damage. Okay, yeah. Uh, so in terms of production in the context of food systems, the way that this is generally thought of is all the inputs needed to grow, say, if we're growing corn, all the inputs needed to grow corn, so fertilizer, pesticides, 
uh, depending on how you're accounting for it, you might also account for the impacts of producing and making the tractors and the fences and the buildings that are on the farm. And then on the farm itself, the production aspect of that is physically applying fertilizer, physically applying pesticide to your field in a way that manages crop growth so that you can produce a lot of food. For livestock systems, it's a little bit more complicated, but the same premise holds. The one additional impact to livestock systems is to grow animals, you have to also have to produce the crops that those livestock are feeding. So it's the same premise, it's just one or two additional steps for things like cows and chickens. So production, as you're talking about it, is all the inputs that it takes to get the food up out of the ground. That is correct. Where does processing come in? Because somehow I thought that production included processing. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So processing is after generally viewed as being after the food leaves the farm. And so that isn't always the case because sometimes food might be processed in the sense that cows might be slaughtered on a farm and then transported elsewhere. But processing is often construed as taking wheat, grinding it, and then sticking it into, say, a Twinkie or a biscuit. So processing, for the most part, occurs when the food has been picked or when it's been delivered to wherever it's going. That is correct. But that's part of the food system as well. And I understand that that can get quite involved in a lot of perhaps unhealthy and maybe environmentally unsavory things can happen during that process as well. Yeah, so that's very true. But I think it's also kind of a measure of how much energy goes into different parts of food production versus what you're getting out. So in terms of producing the food, fertilizer, producing fertilizer is very energy intensive and applying fertilizer results in a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. In terms of processing, that can be very efficient because you don't need a huge amount of energy to mill flour, for instance. Comparatively, you need a lot more energy to produce the fertilizers that are used to grow that flour. So you're saying processing really doesn't have that much of an environmental impact, but rather its greatest source of negativity is perhaps in the nutrients and the, the food and the health impact of the food. That's correct. So it, environmentally, it does matter, but it's much smaller than producing the food itself. How does our food production impact our natural resources and environment? Oh, that's a complicated question, but a very, very good one to ask. Uh, so, so in many ways, I mentioned these briefly at the beginning. If we're just taking a global perspective, it's food production emits about 30, potentially up to 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. It occupies about 40% of Earth's land surface. So it has a lot of impacts just about everywhere on Earth. I'm going to stop you right there so we can go to break, but we will continue to talk about how food production impacts our natural resources and environment right after the break. We are with Professor Michael Clark from Oxford University. We'll be right back on the other side. Thank you, Dr. Clark. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, and interactive experiences. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. So join the movement, keep in touch, and add to their conversation at EarthX Lead. As well, check out their numerous conferences that are being held throughout the end of the year. So go to earthx.org to register and start talking. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority, or the DFW Metroplex in North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all whole food markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many others, as well as online 
at nadallas.com. Check them out. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And we're back with Professor Michael Clark from the University of Oxford in England. And before the break, he was about to delve into telling us how our food production impacts our natural resources and environment. So, yeah, again, food affects the natural environment in many ways. Greenhouse gas emissions, it's arguably the single largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions globally, occupies about 40% of Earth's land surface uses at least 70% of Earth's freshwater, potentially up to 90 95, depending on what type of analysis you're looking at, and is also the single largest threat to biodiversity and species becoming extinct. That's unfortunate because it's something that we have to have. I would also think that technology can and should be able to make some significant impact in this area. What are we seeing? That's actually a very good point. And I think technology is definitely part of the solution. And so one example of this is that you can add specific types of nutrients or things like seaweed to the animal feed of cows, poultry, so on, to make them grow faster and have low environmental impacts. So it's actually really fascinating that small changes in what we're giving to animals can make for very large benefits. But I think the counterpoint to this is that if we rely solely on technology and they don't work as well as what we think they will, is that we might also have to start be, start thinking about changing our behaviors and our habits in terms of what we eat, what we choose to purchase. Michael, which or what food puts our environment at the highest risk and why? And then which are the best and why in terms of environmental impact? So in terms of going back to what I was talking about before in terms of the amount of input that you need to produce a unit of food, this is a good way of thinking about the impacts of different foods. And so if you want to frame it in terms of this is the worst food for the environment, the clear answers meet from ruminants, so things like meat from cows, sheep, and goats. The reason for that is that they, those animals are particularly bad at converting plants into themselves. In so many cases, producing, say, a pound of beef might require something like 20 pounds of corn and soybeans, whereas if you're talking about things like pigs or chickens, it might be closer to about somewhere between two to five pounds of grain to produce a pound of meat. On top of that, in terms of ruminants, is that when ruminants eat food and digest it, they start belching out methane. And methane is a much stronger greenhouse gas than it is carbon dioxide. So not only do you need to have a lot of inputs to produce a unit of, say, beef, but during that production, they also emit a lot of methane, which does not occur during other food production systems or during most other food production systems. So unequivocally, meat is the worst for the environment. And does that make vegetables and fruit the best or what? I would specify that red meat, specifically beef and sheep and goat meat, is typically the worst. Okay. Uh, on the other side, I think the closer you eat, the closer that you can get towards eating plants. So if you're eating plants, you're probably doing a very good job. Impacts of, say, poultry, so chicken, turkey, and then also milk and eggs is somewhere in between plants and beef. That being said, there's also a lot of context that goes into this. And so one good example is that nuts have particularly high water use. And so in places where nuts are being produced in relatively arid regions, like the Central Valley of California, that may not be particularly sustainable, even though they might have low greenhouse gas emissions. A, another good example, which is uh, particularly relevant 
to places like England is that coffee and tea are particularly biodiverse or particularly damaged, damaging to biodiversity because they're produced in essentially ecologically sensitive and highly biodiverse regions. That's interesting. And I'm looking forward to on the other side of the next segment when we talk from the health perspective, I want to see if the good foods, the foods that are good for the environment are also good for health. That's interesting to see. Now, Michael, you have focused on expanding the food system model to incorporate biodiversity, which you've mentioned, and economics. So why does this matter? And then how do our current food systems threaten biodiversity? Because, again, you've mentioned that a couple of times during our conversation today. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. Uh, So in terms of, I'll talk about biodiversity first. There's a report that came out late last year that said that over 1 million species are currently threatened with extinction by human activities. It's hard to break down what proportion of those species are specifically threatened by food systems. But if we're looking, say we only look at reptiles, mammals, birds, and amphibians, about 70% of those types of animals, of those types of species, are threatened specifically from food systems. And that is by far the largest sector that has an impact on biodiversity. So to understand, to be able to combat this impact that food systems have on biodiversity, we need to have a better idea of essentially what's going to happen in the future. And so, as you mentioned, part of the work that I'm working on right now is essentially say, how are food systems going to change in the next 50 years? What does that mean in terms of where those crops, where that future food is going to be grown? And then based on where that food is going to be grown, what species are going to be impacted by changing food production systems? The unfortunate news is that across about 20,000 species, the average species is expected to lose about 8 to 9% of its remaining habitat in the next 30 years. So that's not a small amount. Uh, that impact gets worse for species that are already threatened with extinction. So, for instance, there, we estimate that roughly 1,200 species are likely to lose more than 25% of the remaining habitat within 30 years. Is this threat to the biodiversity or these endangered species, is that threat from land use for food production, or is it due to pesticides, or... What exactly is it coming from or is causing it? So most of the damage that food systems has on biodiversity is specifically from land use change. Okay. So essentially clearing forests, clearing grasslands, clearing something to produce more food. Uh, Pesticides also matter. Fertilizers also matter. But generally, it's not quite the same extent as physically clearing land to produce more food. So how or does the environment and environmental issues and problems impact how and what food is produced? Yeah, so there's a lot of feedback between the impact that food has on the environment and the impact that the environment has on food. Yes. So one one kind of research room that's been going on, or one discussion that's been going on, is looking at how climate change is going to affect where food can be produced. And even beyond that, how climate change is likely to affect the productivity of our current food systems. And so within that context, this is only one example. There's going to be a lot more in terms of the water feedback from water use, feedback from, say, no longer having biodiversity in a place of growing food. But in terms of the climate perspective, there's pretty good evidence that certain crops are no longer going to be able to grow, be grown where they currently are. So, for example, if I remember correctly, wheat in the U.S. is probably going to have to shift slightly farther north as climates become more arid and a little bit warmer. The other aspect of this is that 
over about the past 40 to 50 years, climate change has already negatively impacted crop yields in many locations. And unfortunately, the locations where those crop yields have been most impacted tend to be in the same places where communities are least able to respond. So it's kind of like where, where are some of those places? Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia. So generally less affluent or income regions that may not have access to alternative food sources. So what are the least sustainable aspects of our current national and international food systems? And, and what does a sustainable food system actually look like? That is also a complicated question. <laughs> so I'll try, I'll try to keep this short. I think the least sustainable aspects is kind of what we're choosing to eat and how much of it. And so granted, those, those are entirely interlinked. And in a sense, those also drive how those foods have to be produced. Well, in terms of what a sustainable food system looks like, is that's going to be very context-dependent based on both what people want, but also the food culture, the policy contexts, and what can even be grown in locations. But the good news is that, generally speaking, sustainable food systems are going to be able to provide healthy diets at economically affordable prices that also have low environmental impacts. So right now, in terms of trans transition to get there, in places like the U.S. and the United Kingdom, that means generally eating less meat, fewer calories, that's more in line with our metabolic needs, but also eating more fruits and vegetables. And that is what is consistently being exhorted to the population. I think it's getting through a little, but I guess I am concerned because one of the things I've clearly gotten from your conversation, though, is the biggest impact is the land that our food production takes to happen. <laughs> and that's a bigger issue. We're going to have to find some truly innovative and more efficient ways to cut down on that land. Well, last question very quickly, because we have one minute to go, and that is what can ordinary people do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions to this? So I think there are two to three things. One is changing purchasing habits and dietary preferences as much as possible to focus on those foods that are sustainable and also healthy. The second one is reducing even beyond changing dietary habits and beyond changing what you eat, just eat a more appropriate amount of calories. So eating less if you're over-consuming, eating more if you're under-consuming is going to be healthy. The other aspect, too, is reducing food loss and waste. So in the U.S., about a third of the food that is purchased and brought into a person's home is thrown away in the trash. And that also has a really big economic impact. So in the U.S., about $2,500 is spent per person per year to purchase food. So if you're throwing a third of that away, that literally means that you're throwing about $800 in the trash each year to purchase food that you're not going to eat. Throwing away money, yes. Thank you so much, Michael. We really appreciate your help. You have made us smarter today. We hope to have you back sometime in the future, and we are now going to go to the next part of our show to look at these same issues surrounding food production, but we're going to look at it from the health perspective. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after the break. Thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. With our episode on food systems, how it affects the health of the planet and our health. 
And in part two of our show, we're going to dig into this from the health perspective. Now, the food we eat and how we produce it determines the health of the people and the planet. And we are currently getting this seriously wrong, say, prominent scientists and researchers. Population health is a key factor in addressing food systems challenges, especially as nutrition-related chronic diseases such as obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and some forms of cancer are major contributors to the global burden of disease. Now, transformation of the global food system is urgently needed also as more than 3 billion people are malnourished, and this includes people who are both undernourished and overnourished, and food production is currently exceeding our planetary boundaries, which is driving climate change. And so providing healthy diets from sustainable food systems is an immediate challenge as the population continues to grow. And, of course, the population is projected to reach 10 billion people by the year 2050. And as we get wealthier, we talked about this in the last show, we don't know why, but as we get wealthier, there's an expectation of higher consumption of animal-based foods. Now, compared with current diets, global consumption of foods such as red meat and sugar definitely needs to decrease, really by about 50%, while the consumption of fruits, nuts, and vegetables needs to increase more than twofold. But again, all of this has to be applied locally as the various regions and continents are different. For example, countries in North America, which is probably the United States, tend to eat almost six and a half times the recommended amount of red meat, while countries in South Asia eat only about half of that recommended amount. This is all interesting, but here today to help us unpack this and understand it more, is David Walinga, MD. David is with the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is a great friend to this broadcast. David is a physician with more than 20 years of experience in writing, policy, and advocacy at the intersection of food, nutrition, sustainability, and public health. His current work focuses on the overuse of antibiotics of human importance in the U.S. livestock production, and prior to rejoining the Natural Resources Defense Council, he co-founded Healthy Food Action, Keep Antibiotics Working, the campaign to end antibiotic overuse, and he directed the health program at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy in Minneapolis. Dr. Walinga completed his medical school education at the University of Minnesota, and he holds a bachelor degree in political science from Dartmouth. Welcome, Dr. Walinga. We're so glad that you could be with us today. Well, thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Can you start out by telling us more about the intersection of food, nutrition, sustainability, and public health? And can you break down that connection for us and connect the dots for our listeners? So... There's a lot of different stories that can make that connection. Uh, it's hard to talk about the food system because that doesn't really mean much as a term to a lot of us because we don't think about systems. We just know that things are connected in our day-to-day life, and um, or at least they should be. So the food system goes something like this. Um, think about uh, what you want to eat. And then what are the qualities you want? You, you want something that tastes good. 
you want something that's available, you want something that is healthy for you, you want something that is like near and dear to your family because there's nothing better than sitting with your family in the backyard and barbecuing and maybe having a beer together, right? It's about connection. And so uh, really food is about connection and all those things come into play. Now that, that the thing that we've forgotten now that less than 1% of our, uh, of our country farms is that food is an agricultural thing. Like you can't really have food without having agriculture. So um, a lot of what we're talking about is not food, it's farms. And you know, food is just one product that farms come from. Uh, farms have resources, they have soil, they have water. So how the food, how, how those farms make choices about what they uh, grow and how they grow it ends up determining uh, how healthy that food is, how sustainable it is, how it infects the weather and the environment in the communities that are downstream of farms. And, you know, I live two miles from the Mississippi. A lot of the country lives two miles from the Mississippi. All of us are downstream of somewhere in the Mississippi. And, you know, most of us up in the northern part of the Mississippi are putting a lot of chemicals into the water that then reach those of us who live, you know, down at the tail end of the Mississippi. So there's no getting away from the interconnection between food and how we farm it and sustainability. Now, the health piece is a little harder to draw, not, not from nutrition. You know, most of us know that we eat some foods that are good for us. We eat some foods that probably aren't some, so good for us. Uh, and, and most of the foods that aren't too good for us, we eat too much of them. And, uh, uh, and we sort of know that, and that's why... By and large, my, my generation is less healthy than the one before it, and so on and so on. Um, but what we don't think about is all the other stuff that's important to health. Nutrition is just one thing. So, you know, it's become kind of a, uh, a recognition now that very little of what makes us healthy comes from the doctor's office, and even less comes from the hospital. Like, the vast majority of how healthy we are has to do with the community we live in, uh, um, you know, how much we drive, what we eat, uh, and the rest of the environment. I call all of that the environment, whether we take mass transit, um, how polluted the air is in our city, whether our house is next door to a big old plant spewing something into the water that, the, that we played in as kids. All of those things really form our health from a very young age. And a lot of that is connected to, as you heard from Michael, it's connected to farming. It didn't used to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. It's just the way that our country chooses to farm in particular has a lot of pollution tied up in it. And that's a choice that has been made and passed on to us through policy, through government regulation, through or the lack thereof. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where we're starting from, is a very unregulated, very polluting uh, system of farming that is not particularly healthy, often doesn't really grow the foods that we want people to eat to be healthy at all. Um, and I'll give you some examples of that. And, and it's also a, a food system or a farm system that sort of is broken the natural connection between farms and plates, between food and people. 
Dr. Walenga, our previous guest told us about the various components of our food system and how they impact the environment. Now we want to jump off of that to talk about how these various components affect our health. Right. And he was mentioning the components such as transportation, the energy used, yeah. how they got from one place to the other, et cetera. Well, we have a very industrial system uh, right now. Uh, most of what it grows is not food. Uh, it's things like seed corn, which I suppose you could say it's fed to animals and then that makes food. But it's not food. You, you can't go out and take a stalk of seed corn and eat it, right? Um, and a lot of it uh, in my neck of the woods um, is corn that's made into ethanol and is fuel. So um, what we do make for food uh, in this food system is very industrial. It means it's a lot of chemicals, as Michael was saying. And that's because we've gotten away from a way of farming that creates a farm and treats a farm like a system uh, to, and, and uses practices on the farm in a smart way to reduce pests. And instead, we've relied on chemical technology. And, you know, maybe at, as a short-term approach, that kind of worked, but we really didn't look at or value how much it was polluting uh, the food supply and how that pollution affects even our fetuses and our children. Sorry. I have to think, though, that that affects our health at a number of levels. So let me talk about climate, because Michael addressed that, but I want to talk about the human aspects of climate. So there's two health things one could say. One is that, as you heard, agriculture is a big user of carbon and therefore a big polluter in terms of uh, nitrogen and carbon gases that then change the climate. But then the other thing is that as the food supply gets less predictable, we may have more of these events like COVID-19 where we just can't depend on the food supply, you know, because the supply chain is broken, you know, the meat plant shut down, we've got farmers plowing perfectly good food into their fields. Lots of assault on us and our food, and we're going to pick that up right after the break. We are here with Dr. David Walinga with the Natural Resources Defense Council, and we're going to go to break now, but he will be with us right after this to continue talking about climate change effects on our food system, looking at our health. Thank you, Dr. Walinga. We want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festivals, and interactive experiences. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. So join the movement, keep in touch, and add to the conversation at EarthX League, as well as check out the numerous conferences that they are having. So go to earthx.org to register and start talking. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the green, healthy, and sustainable living authority that we need right now. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, and sunflower shops, as well as online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Thank you, sponsors. back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. 
And we are back with Dr. David Walinga with the Natural Resources Defense Council, and he's talking to us about food systems, how it affects the health of our planet and our health. And Dr. Walinga's expertise is in from the health perspective. So now, before we went to break, you were talking about our food systems, our health, and climate change, and you mentioned that COVID-19 has an impact as well. So can you continue to tell us about that? I was just saying that one of the things we've seen with COVID-19, we've seen a lot of things, but it's been uh, remarkable in the way that it has disrupted a lot of things that are wrong with our food system. It's uncovered the problems that we knew were there, or some of us did, but, but they weren't as evident. So, for example, we have uh, a lot of our healthy food is grown in very few places, uh, Central California, um, Florida, uh, maybe a little bit in the southwest, especially in the winter. And what happens, we normally rely on that to be shipped all over the country. Well, what happens when truckers aren't working? What happens when the food plants that do the processing can't function because their labor force is sick? Um, what, that's what we found out is that there's a real downside, both in terms of food availability and our health, from a system that is so highly industrialized and uh, consolidated where just a few places produce, you know, most of the artichokes for the rest of the country or most of the strawberries or most of the tomatoes. And at the same time, some of the frontline, what are called essential workers, are food workers, and they're also among those who are most getting sick from COVID-19, and that's not an accident. Their conditions are often not very good. You know, all of us heard during the, I hate to say during the height of COVID because we're still there, but several weeks ago, all of us were hearing about and seeing on television where milk was being destroyed or poured out and livestock was being destroyed because it couldn't be shipped. At the same time, people were in miles-long lines waiting for food from the various food banks. I can't imagine in my mind why technology can't adapt to fix those needs. Well, because technology, the technology we have it has adapted, but it's adapted to a system that doesn't evolve and is assumed to be static where nothing changes. So somebody somewhere has a spreadsheet and they said, well, gee, next, next month is June. We're going to need X number of tons of, of this commodity and we're going to move it from point A to point B. Nowhere in that spreadsheet did it say, and if COVID-19 hits, we better have a backup plan. Or if anything happens, because the fact of life is that everything changes. So to have this food system that does not acknowledge that everything changes right. is a bit Past my imagination. <laughs> now, Dr. Walinga, let me ask you, what would you say are the most detrimental components to our health of our food system? And what damage do they cause and has this grown over time? Yeah, I, I, would, I would maybe say three or four linked things. One, that it's gotten so centralized and really controlled by just a few companies in each segment. It doesn't matter which segment you choose. Uh, if you talk about groceries, you know, there's Walmart, there's Target, there, and then there's a few smaller ones down the way. Um, if you talk about meat, it's Smithfield, JBS, 
uh, Tyson uh, National National Foods. You know, kind of like that, all the way down the list. And that has that kind of consolidation is a recipe for a disastrous uh, system that's lacking in adaptability and lacking in nimbleness. What about food processing and our food nutrients value? I hear a lot about this. Is this getting better or worse, and how is it affecting the kind of the overall population health? Yeah, I, I'm surprised you're hearing a lot about it. I first heard about it by, um, I think his name is Don King. He might have been at Texas Tech years ago, but I heard him speak probably 15, 20 years ago, and he made the point that I presume is still valid, that as the, as the temperature warms, uh, all those carbon-based foods uh, or some of them at least, seem to get less dense in nutrients. And as we make a more industrial system where we try to speed up how fast things grow, they tend to get less nutrient-rich. And so we're told that all the food, we need to speed things up to make food cheaper, but at the same time, it might be cheaper, but we're getting less of the bang for the buck from a nutrient standpoint. Maybe it'd be better if we ate less food and it was more nutrient-rich because then we'd pay less at the grocery store and our body would be better off because we'd have more nutrients. I have to imagine so. Let's talk for a minute, too, about the overuse of antibiotics in food production. We talked about that quite a bit on the, uh, the first part of the program, but we were talking about it from the standpoint of its effect on the environment. Right. But I know that antibiotics also can have a perhaps just as great, if not greater, effect on our health. Well, antibiotics are critical to our entire medical system. You can't do C-sections or any kind of organ transplants or cancer therapy without working antibiotics. Um, we are reaching a point very soon where our modern medical system is going to have to change uh, maybe for good because we have more and more infections that are untreatable. All right, we don't have an abundance of antibiotics. Our antibiotics have been disappearing for 35, 40 years, and we're doing nothing about it, or very little. What do you mean, well, disappearing? Uh, well, the bacteria, uh, when they're exposed to antibiotics, become resistant to them. So say you have a pneumonia caused by a, you know, a, a strep pneumonia. Well, uh, there might be strains of resistant bacteria that are untreatable, uh, causing that pneumonia. And that's really important if you have a pandemic and a lot of people go on ventilators and get pneumonia. Some of those are viral pneumonias, but a lot of them are bacterial pneumonias. What if you no longer had an antibiotic to treat that? So when you say disappearing, you mean they're still there, but they no longer work. They don't work. Yeah. They don't work. Right. And every major public health authority in the world has said this day is coming soon unless we urgently change how we do business. I'd like to connect the dots for our listeners here. The overuse of antibiotics in the production of food and then how it gets to creating that resistance in us. Well, when a bacteria, and you and I have billions of bacteria in our gut, same with a cow, same with a pig. When we feed ourselves or feed those animals antibiotics, those bacteria get, get are more likely to be resistant to those antibiotics. So you only want to use them when they really have to. But the vast majority of antibiotics we think being used on livestock in the U.S. are completely unnecessary. Um, they're not sick animals. They're used routinely whether or not the animals are sick. 
I've heard that. They give it to the animals to keep them from getting sick. And our last show a couple of weeks ago, they told us they give them to the animals to keep them from getting sick because they have the animals raised or breeded in such negative or inhumane conditions. Right. And that's definitely true. And that would be that would be maybe more understandable if the animals were actually staying well, but, but in fact they're not in my work, some of which just came out two weeks ago. Um, animals in beef feedlots in Texas are getting sicker, even though we're feeding them antibiotics all the time. And then those antibiotics that are given to the animals then are passed along to us when we eat the meat or eat the milk. Is that how it gets to us? No, and- not the drugs. What gets passed to us are the drug-resistant bugs which are on the meat, which are in the water next to the farm, which are even in the air downwind of the farm, which if you're living in a community and breathing pig dust or cattle dust, you're breathing antibiotics and antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So the overuse, our resistance, is coming from the animals, the things that the animals are surrounded by, as well as our own prescriptive use of antibiotics. Really briefly, Dr. Willinga, you have been so helpful and provided us with so much information and there's always not enough time. So really briefly, tell us how our food system needs to look to place health as the top priority, which apparently it is not now. Nope, it's not. Well, uh, it starts with voting uh, because every five years there's something called the Farm Bill that creates the food system by and large. And uh, it's controlled by um, people who primarily are from districts where the biggest defenders of the current food system are operating. And that is industrial producers? Industrial producers or farms that are feeding animals to those industrial processors. And when is the next time that the farm bill comes up? Last one was finalized in 2018, so we'll have one We'll start working on it probably early in 2022. Um, but if you have elected officials and they get committee assignments when they get to D.C., and most people who go on the agriculture committee with that rights to the farm bill are people from agriculture districts. But, you know, it, all of us eat, so we need people who eat to say, hey, I want my representative to be on the farm bill team so to look out for my eating interest. Exactly. And we hope that on this show we can help that because I know that most people do not know about the Farm Bill, what it is, what it does, not to mention when it comes up. And I think that's the key is that that needs to become more of a public issue. Dr. Walinga, we thank you so much for your information. We will have you back because you have so much more information to give us. We have been with Dr. David Walinga with the National Resources Defense Council. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners, for listening to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Thank you, and join us again next week as we continue talking about our food system, its impact on our health and our environment. Thank you. Thank you.